as Pete, uh, as Pete said earlier, and, and no doubt uh, many, many others will mention this over the next couple of days because it, it needs to be named. It's really important that we name it, that this has been and is a really challenging time. You know, as, as Pete said, we, we've journeyed through the pandemic, we're facing a cost of living crisis, uh, there are troubles across the globe. These are challenging times and none of us are shielded from pain and suffering, whether that's our own or whether that's amongst those that we love, those around us, those that we work with, those that we lead. And you know, as a, as a leadership team here at Wildfires, we pray, we really pray intentionally about what we share in these main sessions together. Uh, and we had such a strong sense about this morning, that we wanted to create space, we wanted to create a moment, create space to process some of that pain, both personally, but also prophetically, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that brings comfort. That's what the Word of God tells us. And of course, the Word of God also says uh, that as, as a church, as the people of God, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? But we're also called to weep with those who weep. It's what we're called to do. And sometimes I wonder if the church at times can be guilty of mistaking faith for toxic positivity. You know, when troubles come, when heartaches come, when we face difficulty and disappointment, when there aren't nice, neat answers to those tricky questions, uh, are we just gonna sweep them under the rug of shallow faith? Are we gonna follow the world's example and try and escape from our pain, run from it, bury it? Or are we gonna embrace it? Are we gonna face it and allow God to speak into it? We have a choice to make, and so rather than, rather than a talk this morning as such, it's my privilege to interview uh, a couple that, that some of you will know, uh, Ness and Rich Wilson. I'm gonna invite them up in just a moment. Ness is part of the leadership team here at Wildfires. Uh, she also heads up the Pioneer Network, Pioneer Network of Churches. Uh, she leads Open Heaven Church in Loughborough. Uh, and Rich, uh, Rich heads up Fusion, which is a vital ministry reaching students across the UK. He's also uh, written this brilliant book, which you can grab in the bookshop, uh, a, a Call Less Ordinary, where uh, he shares some of, some of the journey uh, that Rich and Ness have been on, so definitely worth getting hold of that. Uh, more significantly than all of that, Rich and Ness are also parents. They're parents. Uh, they're also two of the most Christ-like people that I know. And as they share, you, you will see how much they radiate Christ in what they're going to share. And many of us will not have been through the intensity of pain that they have been through over the last year. But the sense that we have is that as they courageously share the journey, share some of their story, that it will, it will impact those of us in the room that are facing, that are processing real trauma and pain right now, but it's also an opportunity for us to learn. We've gotta learn how to love a hurting and confused world. 
And so we're diving into the deep end this morning and we trust that God is gonna speak to us deeply, profoundly, and move among us through the words of Rich and Ness. So would you give them a massively warm welcome as they head up. Hey, hi. We're strategically sat like this. It feels sort of, we were saying it's not quite coffee, coffee table, is it? But we're sat like this, so hopefully you will all be able to see, uh, see their faces in some way, shape or form. So, oh, that was, something happened. I don't know. Um, you can't see, no. I have no idea. Oh, it's upside down, no. We, we were told to sit here. Oh, there we go. Anyway. Ness, Rich, um, would, you, would you just share with us some of uh, what's happened over the last year? Yeah, I'm gonna kick off. Uh, just permission to, um, to go with what God stirs in your heart as we share. We're not quite sure what we're gonna share. Um, it will be some snippets um, and we're just trusting God that he will minister to us as we share but also minister to each other and what Rachel said about us needing to uh, know how to process and engage our pain is so important for ourselves for our own journey but also for uh, the world around us so um, I'm gonna start and um, we have been through a lot of trauma as a family. Um, a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, my brother, my younger brother James, got diagnosed with cancer, lung cancer. Not a smoker, but he got lung cancer. And we did what we know how to do, which is pray. Um, but as time went on, it was obvious that he was getting worse. And then in the last, I say, last nine months of his life, um, my interactions with him changed. Uh, they were very sacred. I, I almost went with a sense of trepidation. It was like going to see a holy man. He's a very godly man. Um, he's the father of three daughters, eight, six, and four at the time. And uh, as I'd see him, whilst we were praying for healing, we were also preparing for what seemed like was happening, that he was heading towards death. And he constantly surprised me um, one time he told me that uh, he was currently going into his daughter's bedrooms and praying for them and committing them to Father God because he wasn't quite sure how much longer he was going to be around to Father. Uh, and this was the mark of the man. When it came to his last Christmas, he thought, what do I get them for Christmas? And he chose to get them some jewellery with a a Bible verse each on it. But he said to me, uh, I deliberately didn't choose a Bible verse that was about comfort, because I knew they would get comfort. I wanted something that would give them instruction. And as a father, I wanted to leave them with instruction in the ways of God. And then in the last few weeks, um, he said to me, Rich, I'm not gonna be around. 
if it's possible, can you help with some of the fathering that's going to be needed? And uh, yesterday was the first anniversary of his, his death. Um, three months earlier, three months before he died, another bomb went off in our family. Nessie's going to share. Yeah, so three months before James died. Sorry, I didn't really want to cry right at the very start because I want to be coherent because I think we've got some things to share that will allow Father God to minister to us all. So I'm going to breathe. Pause. Um, so, so March last year, our, our daughter Lauren, who was 12 at the time, um, went into hospital with headaches. Um, went in on the Monday, the 1st of March. Wednesday, the 3rd of March, an MRI scan revealed a brain tumor. Friday, the 5th of March, brain surgery. And um, she recovered remarkably well from brain surgery. And surprised everyone, walked out of hospital five days later. Um, and then um, we waited a couple of weeks for lab results. Um, and, and when they came through, that was, um, that was a bomb. Of, um, it was a serious grade four tumor. She didn't fully realize quite what that meant. Um, so all she knew it was, it was serious, but um, I guess we had a, an added sense of quite how serious it was. Um, and so then uh, she started on the treatment plan, which was six weeks combined radiotherapy and chemotherapy, and she was an absolute trooper. So went, continued going to school all day, every day. She would get home from school, would jump in the car, drive an hour to the hospital for radiotherapy, an hour back. And the drive, she, she had created a, um, a bespoke playlist of her favorite worship songs and her favorite upbeat party songs. And sometimes on this drive to and from the hospital, I would look across to her, because we'd both be singing, and I just, just want to bottle that moment. You know, she found real strength in, in worship and in singing. Mm. Um, and then we'd get home from radiotherapy, and then that evening she'd take chemotherapy tablets. So that was six weeks. We'd get up the next morning and go to school. Um, and I think she actually enjoyed the sense of she was defying all the medical expectations and predictions, you know, because you get told, obviously, everything that, that could happen. But she knew there was this army of prayers that, that were kind of fighting, you know, um, with us on our behalf. Um, and then we had a month's break, uh, and she went on to then a higher dose of chemotherapy. Um, she got a whole load of bucket hats. She really, because she, she was like, if I'm going to lose some hair, I'm still going to try and, <laughs> you know, look good. So um, bucket hats was her thing. Um, though she didn't actually lose much hair. Um, and then, and again, just continued going to school all day, every day. Um, and actually, last summer, we lived in many ways a relatively normal life because the side effects were so minimal, really, for her. Um, we were on holiday, we were swimming in the sea, 
just doing all the kind of normal stuff, really. And then um, it was half term, October half term, and um, she'd been to a trampoline park, which again shows her kind of spirit of the youth had hired out a trampoline park. She was like, I might be on chemotherapy, you know, <laughs> I might be fighting cancer, but I'm absolutely going to go to the trampoline park. She took a friend with her, a non-Christian friend from school. They'd had a great time, but she had come back with some sort of aches and pains and had assumed she'd sort of overexerted herself trampolining. But then October, half term, we were away. It was the three of us, our oldest had just started at uni. So it was the three of us, we were in Wales on a half term break. And the pain started to get worse and she, she threw up. And at that point, my heart sank because um, I knew that was not a good sign. So rang the hospital. We were told to get there quickly um, and um, an MRI scan revealed that um, the cancer had come back and had spread significantly down her back, her neck and a lining over her brain. Um, and that was on Friday, the 22nd of October. And we, I had stayed overnight with her in hospital and the consultant had said to me, the scans are in, uh, you need, because you're only allowed one parent in the ward because of COVID rules. So um, I, she said, you need to ring your husband. Rich came in, we went to a side room and she told us that the cancer was back and had spread with a vengeance and that they were gonna stop the chemotherapy because it was doing nothing. And they said, uh, she has a few months left to live. And so we went back to the ward and you sat behind her, wrapped your arms around her. And I just held her hand. And I just said, darling, the scan results show the reason your back and your neck is hurting. The cancer has spread. I said, but you know, the doctors don't have the final word. So, <laughs> there is hope of a miracle. We just went after that miracle, like, all the way through, you know, right to really her last breath, fighting for that miracle. Um, I said, there is still the hope of a miracle, or there is the hope of heaven, because there will be healing either way. It's either healing on this earth, or ultimate healing in heaven. And I said, and if you do go to heaven, you will see Jesus. You'll see Uncle James. You'll see Josiah, who's her brother. We had a, a son who died. Um, and I said, and time's different. So it will hardly feel like you've been there any time at all. And you'll look behind you and we'll be there. And she was distressed for a few minutes. And then something just seemed to just kind of like calm her and she, she, she stopped being distressed. And from that moment, it was then actually only 17 days until she died from that moment. But she had the most remarkable grace over her. It was quite unbelievable to watch her. At one point she had a picture, she was praying, she felt God gave her a picture and she said it was like, I was on God's feet you know, like when um, a little girl is on their dad's feet and they're walking, and she said, and God has got me, he's in control, I'm surrounded by light, I'm surrounded by love, and he knows where we're going. Mm. You know, and it was really an incredible picture. And then um, 
the, the next 17 days were holy days, sacred days, and painful days, where she um, first of all lost the use of her legs, and then Sir Rich was carrying her everywhere, and then um, a couple of days later lost the use of her arms, and then her hands, her neck. We ended up in a children's hospice for the last nine days, and on the first day she looked around and said, Mummy, I think I'm going blind. But at no point in all of that, as her body was shutting down, she never panicked or lashed out or got, got angry. She just had this incredible, just, it was a supernatural grace over her. So we're so thankful. So many people were praying. I know some of you here were praying. So, so thankful. In fact, she was so thankful of all the prayers going on because she knew something supernatural was happening in her. This peace, this grace. She said, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of death. That's what she would tell her friends. And it was incredible to watch. Um, and one of the last coherent things that she said I recorded it, was please tell um, the people who have been praying, they are the most amazing people. Wow. So that's some of you in the room. Lauren said, you are the most amazing people. And then um, on the 17th of November, she died. Why don't you um, tell us a little bit more about Lauren? I think there's a, there's a photo, isn't there, that's going to um, pop up. Uh, I mean, you shared a little bit about her faith, but I know there was one thing that, that you said to me, was in conversations with her friends at school, many of them weren't Christians, and they were blown away by her faith. And she would use that phrase, there's hope either way. It's okay, because there's hope either way. Why don't you share a little bit more about, about her? Yeah, uh, she, she was so trusting. Uh, I think... Um we, re we reflect on actually how much she taught us over her journey and um, amazed us. Uh, it, you know, when that second diagnosis came, it, it was almost like the, what we'd been carrying for eight months but then went a bit more public and we kind of left the door open for people to come and, and pray with us. And we, we, went after, we went after healing. There's nothing else you can do. Death is an enemy and we, probably do it all again pretty much the same I don't know what we do differently um, and she was party to that um, and I think sometimes in pain we, we miss some of the miracles in plain sight we didn't get the one miracle we really wanted <laughs> and that's what we're, we're left with and we'll we'll talk about that but we we did get glimpses of how um, how God uses us and uses her. And I think her personality and her faith kind of came through to a new level at the end. She almost went from being a little girl to a young woman. And um, the maturity that she showed with her friends and some of the, the things that she said to them um, surprised us and delighted us. Uh, and she was a joy bringer, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, her nickname was Captain Fun from age six, but she was a real joy bringer. And I think because we, we lost a little boy at, 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 um, 
at one day old, and then, then we got this gift of Lauren uh, for 13 and a half years, and she's utterly delighted us for 13 and a half years because she just lit up every room that she went in, uh, and she embodied joy. And at, at times I said to God, God, what's, where, where's the joy gonna be? Mm. Lauren's brought us so much joy. And if she dies, where's the joy going to be in our home? And the Lord, I didn't hear the Lord clearly much in those days, but I heard him clearly then. He says, I'm the source of your joy. Mm. Lauren was just a conduit. She just reflected who I am. And so we've... (laughs) Unwittingly, she's led us into a much deeper space in God. She's led a whole church community into a deeper space, her friends into a deeper space, just by being herself, mm. uh, which was beautiful. I wonder, I was just going to ask, um, maybe talking about the journey of grief that you've been on. I know um, there's a book, A Grace Disguised which has been really significant for you. That's, people can get that in the bookshop. Oh, no, you can't get the bookshop, sorry. Have to get that somewhere else. But I know that there was that there was a, a a bit in the book that talks about this choice to walk east. This this image of what it means to sort of journey into grief, to walk east rather than instinctively want to go west where the sun is. Why don't you share a little bit about how significant that's been for you? Yes, so that that book is about a tragedy that Jerry Sitzer encounters in his family. And as he's piecing his life, the broken pieces of his life, trying to piece them back together, he gets a dream from God about chasing the setting sun. And he talks about it, and it really resonated with me. And I think it has done for many others that um, when something uh, happens that is tragic, when irreversible loss happens that completely redefines your life and your story, uh, that the temptation is to chase the setting sun because we, we loved the story that had Lauren pretty much at the heart of it. We loved that story. Um, and, and we want to keep that story alive. So the temptation, the desire, and the longing is to extract the last bits of warmth from that story and to chase the setting sun. But the reality is you're never going to keep up with it. And the reality is that that story, even though we have no way come to terms with it, has ended. And so the only thing to, to do really to work out that space is to turn around and, and head east and, and head into the darkness. And it's emotionally counterintuitive, but I do believe it's the Spirit's leading. I do believe it's the grief journey. It's part of the grief gift that he has for us. And the darkness is full of uh, all kinds of challenge and fears and, and treachery, really. Um, but it's the, the, the direction of travel, because one thing's for certain, in going east, eventually the sun will rise. And, um, and, and that, that picture for us is, is, is basically what we've chosen to do together. Uh, and I guess as well, the invitation is for, there's lots of people here who probably feel like they're going east. Uh, and the encouragement, I think, is to go 
east wholeheartedly to, to go there. And, um, and where maybe that journey's got stuck, to choose to travel east again, because I believe that's where the healing comes, and eventually the sun will rise again. Mm. One of the things, and one of the brilliant things about that book, um, it's brutally raw, but it also has that sense of hope that as you go east, and the, and the sun will rise again. It talks about how your soul can be enlarged through loss. Mm. And that's something I think that, that that's, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a hope of like, life won't always be this painful. Mm. And this has got the potential to destroy us or to deepen us. And that book is brilliant, uh, that hope of this can deepen us. You know, deep sorrow has the potential to soften and strengthen and transform us. And I think we pro there's almost an indignation in us of, blinking heck, if we're going to go through this level of pain, then we might as well get transformed and become more like Christ. Wow. You know, yeah. and that kind of like, it's about who we're becoming. You know, so I think we hold on to that, isn't it? It's like who we're becoming, we can become, we can become more like Jesus through this. Um, and that book really helped us, you know, with that sense of hope. One of the other things that I've been struck by in, in some of the conversations we've had is your decision to journey this in community. And I think often with grief, there's a, an understandable, maybe, reaction or temptation just to, to hide, to deal with it in the hidden place, which again is, is, makes logical sense because the pain is so intense. But I've seen you both intentionally choose community, choose to do this with people around you, with your church family around you, even, even sharing this moment here with us. What, why have you chosen to do that? Why is that important? I think one of our deepest convictions is that church is family, and that if it really is family, then you don't hide from your family when you're in pain. Um, and, and so for us, it's really just an outworking. It's, it, it's, on one level, it's counterintuitive because the temptation is to withdraw, um, but the deeper conviction still is that we are created for community even when life sucks. And, um, and, you know, we have always talked about wanting to be a, um, a culture of authenticity. And it's like, well, this is the time, isn't it? To, you know, to, to, to invite others in to our weakness and our vulnerability. And um, we've had, uh, we've got an amazing small group. They're all here. Um, and just even there was a kind of a commitment we made back in March with a diagnosis and we broke bread together and um, one of our small groups said whatever happens we're in this together as we break bread we are one body mm. and a kind of solidarity and so every single week we would break bread together even when we were in the hospice they came to the car park and we broke bread together and just that kind of like this this you know I think shared sorrow is endurable sorrow Mm. And we found actually God's comfort has come really mostly from other people. An arm around the shoulder. When we're in tears and other people cry, it's actually deeply healing mm. to us. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I just think, and so often as leaders, we connect over success stories, but I actually think there's something really powerful about connecting over our places of vulnerability. Yeah. And we've found actually, even in the last six months, there's been added layers of depth and friendship and real heart connection um, with people because we're just like, we are broken right now. Mm. And then other people connect with their brokenness mm. into ours. So it's hard, but it's so rich mm. to do it this way. And I wonder how, you know, I know both of you have a very deep faith that has endured over many years, but, and I think you've alluded to this already, that there, there will have been many unanswered questions. Uh, and, and something you mentioned actually, Rich, in, uh, in a conversation we'd had was this C.S. Lewis quote around perhaps asking the wrong question. You know, there are some questions that just cannot be answered in a logical way. How have you confronted some of those unanswered questions? And then sort of second to that really is how that then works alongside having an eternal perspective. I know some of the verses that you chose for Lawrence Thanksgiving were specifically about this is not the end. You know, holding on to the fact that there is life beyond this earth. Maybe you could speak into that. Yeah, the, um, the land of grief is, is fraught with challenge and, and it's almost like there's a, a ton of emotion that somehow has to pass through the body or it will damage us. Mm. And there's a, a million questions and thoughts that go around our, our minds and our hearts and our heads that have to be vocalized and honored and put out there, but probably not answered. Uh, and C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, is, you know, how many minutes are there in a mile? Or is, an, is, a, is a circle orange or red? He says those kind of questions, they don't make sense. And I think w when we're confronted with uh, death, it feels wrong. It always feels wrong because it is wrong. We're not designed for it. Uh, we're designed for communion. And I think one of the things that makes death so difficult is that sense of communion doesn't go away. It's, it's right at the heart of our longing and desire, ultimately for God, but also for our loved ones. Um, so, so treading carefully, really, um, uh, uh, having friends around us who can listen to the, the most recent iteration of, of questioning uh, whilst ourselves not taking them too seriously, not attaching ourselves to any particular answer, but just recognizing that um, we have to vocalize them. And sometimes we just have, we have to zoom out. So, so I found it incredibly helpful to, to look back and what, what did Christians uh, 200, 300 years ago think? How did they deal? with these situations? What was their thinking and theology? We mentioned Charles Wesley last night, uh, the hymn writer behind that great awakening, and he had eight children, five of which died uh, before reaching adulthood, and that was common then. And um, I don't think it's because God couldn't heal back then. Um, there's a brokenness that's endemic in the world. And whilst we, we long for healing, um, we, we're confronted with um, 
deeper questions maybe about our true purpose, our true identity, why we were even born in the first place. And I, I think uh, I, uh, God reframed a question for me early on, uh, which was, um, really, you're not going to know why Lauren died, but you need to know why she was born. And she was born because I chose her to be born, and I chose to give her to you. And I don't... I don't think it was her timing. I don't think it was her time to die. I don't know, but I don't, everything in me feels that that's wrong. It's an injustice. Um, but I cling to the fact that God chose her. And um, it magnifies heaven. It really does. Um, so whilst I, I, I do want an awakening, <laughs> I really actually want Jesus just to come back. <laughs> Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that eternal perspective. Um, you know, in 1 Thessalonians, it talks about um, we don't grieve as those with no hope. Mm. And I think for me, that's the thing of, you know, it's normal to hurt, it's necessary to grieve, but it is possible to hope. And I think that sense of that hope of eternity you know, the hope of heaven, the hope that Jesus is coming back. He really is. We sing about it. But it's real. It's true. He is coming back, and all things will be made well. Um, and, and, yeah, that's just a deeper revelation that we've got. I think we, having lost our second child, our son, I think we actually, we did actually have a, a, quite a deep revelation of heaven. I and mean, I think we actually passed that on to Lauren, which is perhaps one of the reasons why she had zero fear of death or dying. It was just part of our family conversation, the reality wow. of heaven. Um, yeah, but it, for me, that is just, it's, it, it's, it is such an amazing hope that, that, that we, will, we will be reunited. It's mm. such an amazing hope. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there's, there is the hope of healing, and that's obviously what, what we went for. But that's in the bigger context. You know, one of the things that, that we said to Lauren consistently in the last few days was, Jesus is coming to touch you very soon, and you'll either be dancing on earth or you'll be dancing in heaven. And um, heaven is real. Yeah. In a minute, we're going we're gonna to share communion because, as you mentioned, that, that's been such a significant and intimate thing that the two of you have shared. And we, we're going to do that together. And we're going to pray for some people. But just uh, my last question is really around the two of you because, uh, you know, I, we, we've talked about this together, but the stats around marriage and the sort of grief that you're facing are pretty stark. And I was struck again uh, listening to, to Lauren's Thanksgiving. I forget one of you said that, that, that you wanted to honor Lauren's legacy by becoming two of the most joy-filled old people on this earth, which I thought was stunning. What does it mean for you to have journeyed this together? You know, knowing that that, that range of emotions you'll be feeling at different times. But I, I see the two of you as Strong, strongly united as ever. How, how has that worked out? I think we know a little bit about what we were potentially going to enter into in the grief journey, whilst desperately hoping we weren't going to go on it. And um, 
we know it's perilous and treacherous and, and we knew um, we need to be kind to each other, but that, that's, that trips off the tongue. The counselors say it, be kind to yourself. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and it needs defining what it actually means. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it is about giving each other space to grieve in a way that we need to. We're each grieving our own unique relationship with Lauren uh, that we can only grieve. And then we're grieving the space that she's left between us. And we're grieving what's changed in our relationship as, as a result of Lauren going. Um, so, so we just, we, we know we need to honor that space. Um, we chose to break bread. That was about our connection with each other, as well as saying, God, we're not going to turn away from you. We're going to keep facing you with our pain. And we, we, we chose to do that with friends as well. Um, and then we've also recognized we need to release each other. I think for both of us, the deepest grief, the deepest pain comes out when we're on our own or at least when we think we're on our own. <laughs> um, I had, um, you know, and, and this is where some of the anger and some of the real frustration comes out, and it has to come out, you know. It's come out in the car with me. I found myself uh, taking the dog for a walk, and uh, the dog's in the back, and I'm in the front, and a wave of grief has come, and, and I found noises coming out of my mouth that I've never made before, <laughs> uh, and I totally forget the dog's in the car and I get to the park and I wonder why she's shaking in the back of the car. <laughs> but it has to come out. It has to come out. Um, and then other sacred spaces, you know, we've, we've not done much with her room. It's not a shrine, but this time last year we were doing up her room as a new bedroom and I kind of, in a, I, was fighting, I was fighting dread most of last year. Uh, and, uh, and, and basically going, we're going to make the most beautiful room. And we chose this carpet uh, out of the, the carpet man's van. It's the most expensive carpet <laughs> I've ever bought. But I just thought, I'm gonna, I'm, it's, not, it's not my alabaster jar, but it's, it's, it's something that I'm pouring out. And uh, I thought, I hope I don't see too much of this carpet. I hope it's a carpet that Lauren gets to enjoy. But in reality, her room has become a bit of a prayer room for us and her carpet, a prayer mat, it's, it's a sacred space. And we need spaces that we can go to, to, to deal with our pain and bring God into our pain. And, and so we kind of, we know what each other needs and um, try and give each other that. And I think probably again, just a bit of that indignation of we've been, I think we feel we've been robbed of a lot, but we won't be robbed of our marriage. And so wow. I think there's that kind of, you know. It's <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah, why don't we just honor these guys for a moment? We're just, um, I'm, I'm in awe of you both. It's such a privilege. And I know, I'm sure everybody in this room feels the same. It, it feels like a privilege to be allowed into this space that feels so personal. And I, I know that there will be people in this room who are facing that same prospect of, do I go west or do I, do I go east? And we're gonna pray. And I think it's remembering that this is a big room with a lot of people in it. And 
it's not a pastoral space in that sense, but it, it can be a personal space and it's certainly a prophetic space and we wanna pray, we're gonna pray. But we felt like it was really apt and appropriate to share communion with one another. And, uh, and as, as we've said, this is something that's been really significant for you. And so we, we wanted you guys to lead us. Uh, and so I'm gonna hand over to you both as uh, you lead us in communion. Thank you. If you root around under your chair, you should find that little pod with, with liquid on, liquid in, and a, and a wafer at the top. You might want to peel back so you've got access to both the, the bread and the wine, the symbols. Um, and also, we found it so valuable breaking bread often in this last season. And, and I, th I think we realize it's a practice that we've we've kind of put in certain spaces and we've not brought it into the home enough. We've done it bits in the home, but we realized this is actually a practice that belongs in the home and it belongs around our tables. And so we haven't got any smart liturgy, we, certainly not today. We're kind of gonna do it how we do it at home, which is often with kind of fumbling words and prayers, trying to look at Jesus, trying not to turn our face away. Uh, and bringing our brokenness to him. As we break bread, we remember that he was broken for us and that we can bring everything to him, knowing that he can handle it, knowing that he's not startled by it. And so if you get the bread ready, we're gonna break bread together. So Jesus, we remember you. And sometimes there are no words, and sometimes the words come falteringly. But Lord, we bring ourselves to you in whatever state we find ourselves. We thank you that you gave yourself to us. And we remember when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we imagine you here with us. We imagine you breaking the bread with us. We imagine the scars being revealed on your wrist and the disciples' eyes were opened. Would you open our eyes as we break bread together today? Would you come into our brokenness and our woundedness? Would you give us your perspective? Would you nourish us with things from heaven that we can't access here on earth? Would you give us yourself? Because nothing else ultimately will satisfy. So we take the bread and we remember you. Amen. And as we come to have the wine, I um, felt like I wanted us to just focus on some words that, that Jesus uttered on the cross. And for some of you, you might feel um, this releases you to be brutally honest 
with how you feel, but also releases you in that place of feeling wounded to choose still to trust. And so the words on the cross that um, really struck me a, um, a month or two ago was that Jesus, first of all, said these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for me personally, there was some, some hurt in my heart of feeling that sense of forsakenness. And, and some here might relate to that. What you've been through just feels like it doesn't make any sense and my heart hurts. But then, on the cross, a few moments later, Jesus says, but Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which was a statement of trust. And I found it helpful to realize that whilst my heart can be hurting and needs healing, my spirit, which is the deepest part of me, the essence of who I am, the deepest part of me can say, but still, I trust. God, I don't understand, but I do trust in the goodness of God. And I won't be robbed of that. So as we take the wine, you might, you might want to say those two things. Just say, God, I hurt, but I trust you in my hurt. So Lord, as we drink this wine, we thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for your blood that was shed, that covers us in all of our hurt, our woundedness, and our pain. And Jesus, that blood that was shed, Lord, we know forgives us, cleanses us, sets us free, and makes the way to heaven open. And so we trust you. There's a bigger picture. There's a, an end to the story which is good. Even if this chapter is bad, the end of the story is good. And so we take this wine and we thank you for what you have done for us. Amen.